0: I was reflecting as we were doing the praise and worship, now, I'm almost reluctant to preach because there's such a strong presence of God in the church this morning. Now, it's almost, I almost just want us to sit in that and just breathe in God, if that makes sense. Um, we exalt the, another song that just sings the praises of God. It's a little bit about this morning's sermon. Those two songs particularly connected so strongly to the theme for this morning's preach. I was just struck by it. When the gospel writers write, Jesus is the Kyrios, the Lord, the Master. This is what they're talking about. There is none greater than Jesus. He is the Kyrios. At that time, in the time of Jesus, and just after his death and resurrection, and, uh, around those times... The Jews were forced to say, the emperor or Caesar is the Kyrios. He's the Lord, the master, and the boss. That's how it's translated. Christians said, no, we cannot say it. We can only say, Jesus is the Kyrios. Because there is none greater than Jesus. Let us pray and then go right into this. Lord, thank you that you are the greatest. Without arrogance. You are the greatest. Thank you, Lord, that there is none like you. We sang it this morning and we want to sing it over and over again. We exalt thee. We love you, Lord. This morning, as we stand still at Hebrews 8, we pray that you would speak into our hearts. That you would cement these truths and anchor them deep inside of us so strongly. Lord, that they not only anchor our lives, but that they give us a stability that this world can never shake. Roots in Christ, the greatest the foundation that cannot be shaken. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Welcome. So there is the theme for this morning. Is Jesus really greater? It's an interesting question that has been asked through the ages. It's not a new question. But it seems to me, if I look at the world around us, that this is a question that is being asked more and more. It's becoming a louder question. It's not as if it's, it's becoming less. It's a growing question. People still ask this, and even more today than back then. It seems it's the, probably one of the most important questions of the ages. And that's what Hebrews is all about. It's answering this question. All it's about. Now, Hebrews is a great book, but it's also one of the most neglected books. If you think about your own quiet time, you know, Hebrews is not the book that you would visit the most. Most likely. The other one that people avoid for some reason is Song of Songs. That one I don't understand at all. But Hebrews is a little bit like that. Philip Hughes writes a commentary on Hebrews, and and he says this. About Hebrews as a book. So I'll just read it. He says If there is a widespread unfamiliarity with the epistle to the Hebrews and its teachings, it is because so many adherents of the church have settled for an understanding and a superficial association with the Christian faith. You know, it's as if people in church nowadays are just happy to understand superficially and to superficially. Be connected to faith. It's it's no longer this deep thing that drives everything I do and think and say. Yet it was to arouse, judge such persons from, from the lethargic state of compromise and complacency and to incite them to persevere wholeheartedly in the Christian conflict He's not talking about the Christian faith here. He's talking about Christian conflict. So Hebrews is about the Christian conflict in the sense that, man, when you're a believer, you're going to have many things coming as contending voices, contending issues, distractions, temptations, things in conflict with the Christian faith. Hebrews says, you're gonna be in this conflict. I mean you're in it. In this Christian conflict, you need to persevere wholeheartedly. He says this it is a tonic for the spiritual debilitated. We neglect such a book to our own impoverishment. So let me say it in other words. Hebrews is a book meant to challenge our spiritual complacency and our spiritual paralysis. That's what it's supposed to be. And it speaks to me very loudly and very clearly to my own life. Am I complacent? It's something that that we slip into so easily. You know, we're just happy. We're just satisfied. With what we have, so why should we enter into what is uncomfortable? Why should we go out of the warmth of this wonderful community into the darkness of people who don't experience this, who may not be easy to work with or engage with? You know, I have great friends, so why should I go into places or engaging with people that are not like that? And yet, that's where the Christian conflict wants to take us. To be light and salt there. Not in a shopping center where there's many lights. It's not where it's taking us. This whole thing of Hebrews, so, so think about the book of Hebrews. One of the most prominent theories about Hebrews is that it was written to a house church in the Lycus Valley. Um, so this church had already separated themselves from the main body of believers, and they were beginning to defect back into Judaism. It was probably a church, that's one theory, there's others as well, but it was probably a church that was established by, by Paul and then the work of Timothy, but Paul is dead, and Timothy is now dead as well. So Hebrews is written in that time, they're no longer alive, so these heroes of the faith that fired up this congregation persevere in the faith, and the Christian conflict, they are dead. They're no longer there. So this house church has started to slip away, back into what was comfortable for them, Judaism, and what they knew before, the, the whole thing of sacrifices, and all other things associated with Judaism, away from persevering in the Christian faith. That's one theory. The pressure was on, not just from, from Judaism, but also from you know, from the persecution by virtue of Nero and, and all things happening around that, persecution against Christians. So the theme of Hebrews is, is just simply this. At this time, it's almost like the writer of Hebrews write to this slipping house church and he says, man, let me remind you over and over and over again, Jesus is greater. He's supreme. There is just nobody else that comes close. Now, this is the question that has been asked through the ages. So let me bring you back to Hebrews and just give you a bit of an overview again. Uh, Where are we? What has been said so far and where are we now in Hebrews? For some reason, I think the computer has changed the font, but that's, that's not a crisis. It's all good, as long as you can read it. It's disturbing me because I like the other one more, but you haven't seen it, so that's good. What has been said so far, and where are we now in Hebrews? This was said so far. Christ is superior to the prophets, more or less. I'm just breaking it up slightly. Christ is superior to the angels. Christ is superior to Moses. Christ is superior to Aaron. And in there, there there's the whole thing about Melchizedek and all of that. I was so glad that I didn't get that passage. (laughs) It's great. Christ's ministry is superior to the old covenant ministry, and that's where we start today, chapter 8. It goes on, so I'm not going to talk all about the new covenant today, otherwise the preachers coming after me won't have anything to say. So I'll leave something for them. Um, And then it becomes really practical, the practical outworking of Christ's superiority. What does this now mean? So what? If Jesus really is greater, so what? So we're going to get to all of that still. It's an exciting book if you look at it that way. Can you see that this? It's it's almost like the author is making absolutely 100% sure they cannot miss the message Jesus is greater. He compares Jesus to the best they had in their time Moses. Wow, man, Moses, he was a hero of the faith. No, 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 Jesus is better. Wow, what about the angels? No, man. I mean, the angels are heavenly beings. Now, Jesus is greater than that as well. Wow, really? What about Aaron? I mean, Aaron is the father of the faith. No, no, no. Jesus is greater. Jesus is God. It's a good point. Yeah, yeah. Jesus is God. It's part of the Trinity. It's a good point. This ministry is superior to the old covenant. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. So pick up the thread in the text. So Hebrews 7 says this, Such a high priest truly meets our need. This is now in Hebrews 7. You would have heard about this last Sunday if you were here. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all, when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath replace the word oath with co-signer or cosigning. It's as if God co-signed, that's an oath. Okay? Firm promise. Which came after the law. Appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. It goes on, and now, Hebrews 8. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest, who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. am not going to read all of it with you, but let's read a few of these verses. Hebrews 8, 3. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gift and sacrifices. We'll talk about that sh- shortly. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest. For there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at the sanctuary. That is the copy and the shadow of what is in heaven. You know, the tabernacle, the temple. First the tabernacle and then eventually the temple. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. Since the new covenant is established on better promises. Now, just pause here for a moment. Can you see the question in the text? Is really, really, is Jesus really greater than all of these things? That's really the question. You, You have to think about Hebrews in the context of this question all the time. Is Jesus really greater? Greater than? For the Jew... Their question was, is Jesus really greater than Judaism, uh, than sacrifices, than angels, than Moses, than Aaron? You know, all those things of their time and their world. In our time, the question would be similar, but it would probably sound a little bit different. Same undertone, though. It will be a question that says, is Jesus really better than pleasure? Is Jesus really better than than, uh, humanist beliefs? Is Jesus really better than the pursuit of success, than looking out for number one? Is Jesus really better than just doing nice things with my friends? Or is Jesus even better than the the pleasure in pain? Because nowadays that's a new thing in our world. You know, the pleasure we find in pain, which is an interesting one. Talk about that another day. Is Jesus really greater than all these things? Now, he talks to his Jewish brothers and sisters, so I'm going to talk to you for a moment as if you are the Jewish brothers and sisters. And then he answers this question in that passage. He says, yes, my dear Jewish brothers and sisters, because he's the better high priest. Yes, he is better, because he's the better high priest. Hebrews 8 verse 1. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down Note, sat down. We'll come back to that. At the right hand of the throne of Majesty in heaven, and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by mere human being. We have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who ministers to us from a position of authority in heaven. We know this. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of the Majesty. Why is this important? Because you know, priests never sat. They just never sat. Jesus is seated in heaven in contrast to the continual service of the priesthood under the law of Moses. They were always serving and they could never sit. There was no place to sit in the tabernacle for the priests. The fact that Jesus is seated means the work is completed. It's a clear image of that. Whereas with the priests, the work was never done. So they could never sit. Amazing stuff. Jesus doesn't serve as a preach in an earthly tabernacle or temple. He serves in the true tabernacle which the Lord erected, the one made in heaven. Remember, in in Exodus, I mean, Moses gets instructions to build this tabernacle. and, And it actually clearly states that it's supposed to be a copy and a shadow copy of what is already in heaven. I don't know exactly how it's going to look, but it's according to that pattern. Holy, holy of holies and all of that. Exodus 25 talks about this. The tabernacle of Moses was a copy of this original and it was made by man. Exodus 25, 8 and 9. Amazing stuff. He goes further. He says, yes, my dear bro- Jewish brothers and sisters, because Jesus is the better sacrifice and the better gift. Remember, the question is still, is Jesus really greater than all these things? Yes. 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 Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. Man, there's so much in this, but let's let's just touch on it. Jesus' priesthood had a sacrifice and a better sacrifice, so his own life. There's nothing that can compare to that. Every high priest is appointed to offer both these. Gifts, sacrifices, so it happens all the time. Sacrifices are essential for sin, um, to be forgiven. And why Jesus was better is, it was a once and for all, and it was his own life. There is nothing that can compare to that, and nobody has ever done that. Given his life, like Jesus, for a complete payment for our sin. It's also necessary that Jesus have something to offer. So, so though he never offered a sacrifice according to the law, he did offer a better sacrifice of himself. And then he's a gift. So let me show you how. I've shown you this before, but let me remind you. Jesus is the once and for all and the one and only all-sufficient shalom price. Jews understood this. So when they read... This letter that was written to the house church, most likely, around what Jesus did. And and they hear Jesus is the sacrifice and the gift. They would immediately think, oh, yes, yes, he's the complete shalom prize. What does that mean? It's this thing. Shalom has to do with payment. Shalom is is from that verb, shalem. And then he, uh, this guy, Ot describes it. One might say that there is shalom when payment has been made, when there is no more debt. But what if a debt is so great it can never be paid? Only two solutions. Somebody has to intervene and pay it on your behalf, or else it has to be forgiven. It's only those two options. So in Jewish culture, a shalom price means that, man, if your debt is too great, you have only one of two choices. You know, somebody has to intervene, or it has to be forgiven, while the other choice is you go to jail. But for you to to be free of that debt, the shalom price has to be paid. That's the only, only way to get free of it. In Jesus, He was both. His sacrifice paid the price for our debt. But it also meant that God did the other thing also, which is he forgave completely. So both things happened. That's why we say Jesus is the complete shalom price for our sin. He's both the sacrifice and the gift. Sacrifice for sin so that it can be forgiven. The gift of eternal life and forgiveness of sin that God has given with it. It goes further. Yes, my dear Jewish brothers and sisters, because Jesus, he has a better priesthood and a better temple. The earthly priests served at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. That's why Moses was warned and all of those things we've read it. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one. On earth there were many priests that could serve in the Jewish culture. I mean, they've had quite a few. I mean, there was a whole tribe designated to to priesthood, the Levites. But Jesus is the only one who's qualified to serve in the superior heavenly priesthood. So, So, yeah, 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 we can find priests for the earthly one, but man, there's nobody that's qualified except for Jesus to serve in heaven as our priest. So though this earthly service was good, it's only a copy and a shadow, a dim shadow of what was happening in heaven. And none of those earthly priests could reach into heaven on our behalf and and make it all happen. Think about the temple for a moment. I should have put a picture on there of the temple. But anyway, think about the temple for a moment. First century Jews, they looked at the temple and they thought, man, this is good. They took tremendous pride in the temple. And for good reason, it was a tremendous architectural achievement of the time. It was just stunning. But it's as if the writer of Hebrews says, man, as, as glorious as the temple is, as good as it is, man made it. Now wait till you see what's gonna, what, what is already there in heaven. Because this is just, just a copy of that. A dim shadow. What Jesus is priest of, man, you cannot even imagine it. It's nothing compared to the glory of the heavenly temple that Jesus serves in. That's basically what he says. Now, they would understand this language about the temple because for them it was, I mean, God dwells in the temple. It was a holy place. The writer of Hebrews says, man, there's something so much better. Get your head around this. Jesus is greater. He's the greater priest. He's got the greater priesthood. It's, it, remember what God said to Moses. Just a copy what you've done in the tabernacle and later in the temple. It's but merely a copy of what's already in heaven. Don't forget that. Jesus is the priest of that heavenly temple. Can you now see my Jewish brother and sister, you who grew up with these concepts? Man, Jesus is just so much greater. And he goes on and he says, Yes, my dear Jewish brothers and sisters, because Jesus brings a better covenant with better promises. Now we're going to open that up in the next one or two sermons, I think, even more. I don't know who's coming after me. It's Ben. Ooh, you're going to have a feast of covenant understanding. It's brilliant says this, but in fact the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator or superior to the old one. Since the new covenant is established on better promises. Better covenant, better promises. Jesus is a mediator. We read about this back in Hebrews 7.22 as well. A covenant of grace and not of works. Covenant guaranteed for us by a co-signer, this whole notion of an oath. It's as if God signs the covenant through Jesus' life. So this thing about mediator, in, in the ancient Greek, the word is "mesites," mediator, which really means one who stands in the middle between two people and bring them together. I was sitting there in the, in the pews earlier, and I was looking at this Front view, or second front, where, where did the kids sit? I think the second one. Man, you know, Jesus brings people together. I thought, how is it that they can all fit on that bench? It's just such an image of community. Jesus brings people together as a mediator. He also brings us together with God. Bridges the gaps. He brought two parties or more parties together. So this whole thing about better priesthood, better sacrifice, better gift, better covenant, it's all because of this. Let's go into the next one. Because he rose from the dead and he conquered it. This is interesting because it's not directly mentioned in this passage in chapter 8, but it's alluded to all throughout the book of Hebrews. It's never as if they don't know about this whole thing that Jesus died and rose from the dead. It's, It's an underpinning. It's almost like it's under the surface in Hebrews all the time. So I call it an implicit underpinning to Hebrews 8, and actually to the whole of Hebrews. Not specifically mentioned because it was assumed knowledge. If you think about all of this, man, just go back to it. Jesus is the better priest, the better priesthood, the better sacrifice, the better gift, the better promise, the better covenant. And it's all because of this, because he rose from the dead and he conquered it. That's the proof. I mean, can you not not get your head around this, my Jewish brothers and sisters? Jesus died and he rose. Nobody's done that. He's proven himself over and over and over again. Why do you want to go back to Judaism that does not carry such proofs? Reflect with me on this for a moment. I'm going to show you a video clip. uh, And there's sound with it, so we'll just see how this works. Just think through it as, as the video plays and reflect on it a little bit. Jesus who rose and died, and he's greater than whatever we want to put on the dotted line.
1: We remember the resurrection of Jesus the Christ. We've heard the stories of old how Jesus, God's son, rose from the dead to change the destiny of all mankind to accomplish forgiveness for sinners to believe such things is misguided. The truth is, he was just a good man who died an unfortunate death. Some living in their fantasy world say the tomb was empty, that Jesus appeared to over 500 people after he was raised, that Thomas put his finger in the wounds of the risen Christ. This is not reality. Jesus didn't really die, or if he did, somebody stole the body. Jesus didn't accomplish anything on the cross. I'd be lying to you if I said that for the Son of God there was a real, physical resurrection, or that for humanity there's no more fear of death. Whether you like it or not, this is the reality of Easter. That's what I used to think. But then I opened my eyes made room for him in my heart and Jesus turned it all upside down. This is the reality of Easter, whether you like it or not. There is no more fear of death for humanity. There was a real physical resurrection for the Son of God. I'd be lying to you if I said that Jesus didn't accomplish anything on the cross. That Jesus didn't really die, or if he did, someone stole his body. This is not reality. Thomas put his finger in the wounds of the risen Christ. Jesus appeared to over 500 people after he was raised. The tomb was empty. Some living in their fantasy world say he was just a good man who died an unfortunate death. To believe such things is misguided. The truth is... To accomplish forgiveness for sinners, to change the destiny of all mankind, Jesus, God's Son, rose from the dead. We have heard the stories of old. We remember the resurrection of Jesus, the Christ.
0: Amazing. This almost illustrates in a nutshell what happens in Hebrews. I mean, he writes to this home church. He says, man, you guys, you went through all of these experiences. We told you about Jesus. We showed you the proof. You experienced him for yourself. You know about the death and resurrection of Jesus. You know that he's the better priest. I mean, you understand all these things. You know that he's the perfect shalom price, the perfect sacrifice, the better gift. You know that in Christ, the new covenant has come. You've experienced it all. And he turned your world upside down. Turned it all around. How on earth is it now that you, that you want to slip back into the old stuff? It's like, man, you've tasted ribeye steak and you want to go back to a McDonald's burger? Really? That's the tone. It's very strong. Very strong. That is an incredible video clip. Amazing. Just illustrates the point. Better priesthood. He rose from the dead and he conquered it. Brings us to this question, and it's a question that's, that's the same as their question. It's the question that that I don't think has ever really changed throughout the history of mankind. It keeps being answered. It keeps being asked. It's a question that's become louder if I look around me. It's a joyous question to, ask, uh, to discover an answer for. So we have more history today and more evidence to go on than ever before. From scripture to theology to sociology to history and beyond. So I want to take a look at some of it with you in addition to what the writer of Hebrews says to the congregation. So now I'm not speaking to you as Jewish brothers and sisters, but now I'm speaking to you as brothers and sisters in Christ today. So let us look at the evidence. Yes, my dear brother and sister, Jesus is still greater today because His sacrifice was a once and for all payment. And Hebrews talks about this. When we read these words in John 19, 30, Tetelestai, that's how you write it in Greek, tetelestai, it is finished. He was talking about the full shalom price being paid. Sacrifice, full sacrifice, full forgiveness. That is a good voice. <laughs> you know, It must be genetic, I love it. Full shalom price paid, full shalom price. Meditate with me for a moment on this word shalom. Oh, sorry, tetelestai. It's translated paid in full. It's a term that they used on the market plane or in the market. And it was, if I, I don't know, is lay-by something that we do often in Australia? Probably a little bit. So, so it's really that term. It's when you buy something on lay-by and now it has been paid up fully and now you can get it. Now you can take it. That's the word that's used here. So you've now paid up the lay-by, it's paid in full. That's the word that's used here. So it's almost as if God says, man, I've paid in full, no more lay-by, full forgiveness. The gift is here. Perfect sacrifice. It's all done. Spurgeon said about Tetelestai as a word. He says, an ocean, it's quite, quite lyrical, he says, an ocean of meaning in a drop of language, a mere drop. It would need all the other words that were ever spoken or ever can be spoken to explain this one word. It's altogether immeasurable. It is high. It cannot. I cannot attain to it. It is deep. I cannot fathom it. It is finished. Is the most charming note in all of Calvary's music. James, maybe that's what that meant. Just said this morning. The fire has passed upon the Lamb. He has borne the whole of the wrath that was due to his people. This is the royal dish of the feast of love. This is the royal dish of the feast of love. I. The one word above all for these preachers. J.C. Riley wrote, It is surely not too much to say that of all the seven famous sayings of Christ on the cross, none is more remarkable than Tetelestai. A.C. Gaberlane adds, Never before and never after was ever spoken one word which contains and means so much. It is the shout of the mighty victor, God. And who can measure the depth of this one word? A.W. Pink. He writes this, he says, Eternity will be needed to make manifest all that tetelestai contains. Eternity will be needed to make manifest all that tetelestai contains. I mean, these things just excite me. That powerful stuff. Yes, his sacrifice was once and for all. Payment, it's all there. Let's go on. Yes, my dear brother and sister, because his effect on our world has been good without comparison. Mother Teresa is part of that effect herself. And she has carried on that effect. Pay it forward. That's why I have her image on there. But just think of hospitals, good deeds done in Jesus' name, even today more so than ever. Democracy, constitutions, what an incredible effect has Jesus had on our world. Now, you know, we say, despite evidence to the contrary, there's still people who say that Jesus is a myth. But myths have little or or perhaps not even really any effect on history. The historian Thomas Carlyle, said this. He said, the history of the world is but a biography of great men. Now, Jesus is the greatest of all these great men. Back to our theme of Hebrews. There's no nation or regime which owes its foundation or heritage to a mythological person or God. None of them. And yet, the Western world, so much of it... It's based on Jesus, so it's not a myth. What's been his impact? If you think about the Romans, average Roman citizen didn't feel his impact until many years later. We know this thing, there's a thing on the internet as well that says Jesus had no armies, he wrote no books, he changed no laws. Uh, The Jewish leaders, Romans, Caesar, hoped to wipe his name from memory and from the history books and for a moment, it, it appeared they would succeed because at age 33, he died, more or less. He was crucified, vilified. Today, ancient Rome is in ruins. Caesar is mightily, Caesar is no more. The Romans are no more. Yet, Jesus remembered. Jesus is greater than ever. Enduring influence right there. More books written about him than any other person in history. Nations have used his words as the bedrock of their governments. And so on. I mean, we've seen his effect. His Sermon on the Mount established a new paradigm in ethics and morals. I mean, that's what we're busy with tonight. And it's such an exciting passage of Scripture. It opens up so much understanding of, of what God has broken open for us and made possible for us to live in. Amazing. Schools, hospital, all kinds of things. Over a 100 great universities, including Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth, Columbia, Oxford, they were all begun by Jesus' followers. All based on Christian principles. Some of them have deviated in this, what we call mission drift. But they all started on this. Elevated role of women in Western culture. And women in Jesus' day They were considered inferior. I don't know for what reason they would ever think that. But anyway, (laughs) inferior and virtual non-persons. Until Jesus' teachings was was followed, it was like that for women. Jesus changed that. Slavery. Almost all the nations in Jesus' time accepted slavery as just part of the world. Jesus changed that. Started changing there. If Jesus didn't exist, one must wonder how a myth could so alter history. There's no way. Yes, my dear brother and sister, because he's the great relationalizer. This is my word. I know it's not grammatically perfect, but I like it. Just like it. I was thinking about this thing. It's really all about relationships. And I was thinking. I was at a conference in the week uh, in Alice Springs, of all places. It was a CSA conference, Christian Schools Association. And they've conducted a study over the last two, three years. It's called Relational Schools. And they found this interesting thing that Christian schools in Australia experience a much higher degree of community And flourishing among its students because of the Christian influence. Because of the fact that Jesus brings people into relationship in a way that otherwise doesn't happen. And that relationship helps students to flourish in incredible ways. They they surveyed 13,500 high school kids to do this study. It's quite a big study. Never been done. The biggest of its kind ever in Australia. And man, the evidence is just tremendous. Tremendously clear. So strong. Jesus does this. He brings us into relationship with one another. I mean, in Jesus, I have relationship with people that truly I don't think I would have been in relationship with otherwise. (laughs) And then I started to like them in spite of the fact that they are weird and different. I mean, just like Ben. (laughs) You know, you become to love people and then you start to like them. It usually works that way around if you're a child of God. It's an amazing thing. Jesus comes out of perfect community with perfect relationship in the Trinity. He's part of the Trinity. Perfect community, perfect relationship. And that's why I so smiled at, at the seven or eight kids sitting on this bench. Man, it still amazes me. You know? There's no breathing space because the relationship is so close so community-oriented. Wherever Jesus is served and worshipped, the automatic result is better community and relationship. That transcends difference. That transcends boundaries and issues. That forgives and makes one another more. Beautiful thing. Let's go on. Yes, my dear brother and sister, because Jesus is the greatest stumbling block ever. This is another reason why Jesus... Is Jesus still greater? Yes, because he's the greatest stumbling block ever. What the heck? What does that mean? <laughs> If you notice that nobody ever swears at the name of the devil, it just doesn't happen. I, well, I haven't heard it. It's called the Scandalion, the stumbling block, the stumbling block of the cross. You know this whole notion of uh, if you if you see a uh, if you uh, you know bump your uh, you know stumble across a rock and you hurt your toe and uh, what naturally happens we. We swear. Now, if you don't know many swear words like I do, you will do something else. I don't know what, but use other words. But you'll mean it as a swear word. (laughs) We use all kinds of words. We swear. Now, imagine Jesus is the stone against which we hit ourselves and stumble across. The unavoidable stone for what is broken in our world and for what is wrong. So, whenever we do something wrong, whenever we... We act out of brokenness or we're ever broken. It's almost like we're going to hit our foot or our toe against Jesus and against the fact that he's come to bring the kingdom of God where there's flourishing life, where there's a better way, better choices. We're going to hit our toe against this all the time. It's a stumbling block. And what happens? Some people will eventually recognize, man, I'm hitting my toe against this, I need to... I need to take another approach, accept Jesus, take a different path. Or we persist in our brokenness and our wrongdoing, keep hitting our toe, start swearing at the, at the rock. That's why people swear at the name of Jesus. Does that make sense? That's how I see it. That's why there's so much. It's a spiritual thing, you know, it's a spiritual stone that we, we hit ourselves or bump ourselves again all this, uh, against all the time. Yes, my dear brother and sister, because looking back, we can now even more, uh, now be even more sure that he rose from the dead and he conquered it. The evidence is stronger than ever. It makes more sense than ever. We're going to finish with this. Let me quickly run you through something. I'm not going to dwell on this because this, otherwise it's going to take us too long. There's a number of reasons why we believe that Jesus really rose from the dead. Remember that underpinning to Hebrews? Jesus really rose from the dead. You've, you know this? Man, the evidence today is even stronger. We now look back and we go, we've looked at this from all different sides, and we considered every argument. And now that we have considered every argument, basically, man, the evidence is overwhelming. Look at this. Ten reasons to believe Jesus really rose from the dead Scriptures and writings of the times agree something strange happened on that Sunday morning that caused the grave to be empty, that caused the guards to run away, oh, misspelling of God. Yeah, it's all there. Uh, guards to run away in fear in spite of the threat of the death penalty. So, very clear. In spite of all of this, I mean, they agree. The newspapers of the day said, yeah, yeah, something happened, something weird happened at, at that grave on Sunday morning. We don't fully know what. Cannot explain it, but it happened. The grave is empty. How the heck did that happen? All kinds of theories and postulations, but it happened. Nobody disputed that. There were eyewitnesses to the fact that the grave was empty, and nobody ever re- refuted their testimony. Nobody ever said otherwise. They they couldn't. You know, it goes on. Many people saw Jesus alive after his death and resurrection. Some tried to write it off as hallucinations. But how do five peop- five hundred people at one stage and all at once hallucinate together? And I don't think they had heroin and those kind of. Uh, they didn't have it. Maybe they had opium and poppy seeds. But oh yeah, none of the theories trying to refute Jesus' resurrection make sense. And there, there's a few of them. The disciples stole the body. Yeah, right. In spite of the heavy stone that was cemented in and the guards, How do they manage that? Okay, the disciples imagined it all or told the story for which they were then willing to give their lives for a story. You don't give your life for a lie or a story or an imagining, it doesn't happen. Jesus was not really dead, but he was merely unconscious. And then, then he came by in the grave, he, he was aroused or whatever. And then he freed himself, you know, like MacGyver, in spite of the heavy stone and the gods and the blood laws and all of that. It couldn't happen. Jewish council buried him in a different place to make sure the disciples could not steal his body. So later in, in Acts, when the disciples start saying, Jesus is alive, they start spreading this rumor, they start talking about this, of which you, Hebrews, are the result as well. You've believed, you've talked to people who, who were there perhaps. Well, then the Jewish council could have simply dug up his, his buried body, dead body, and showed everybody that this is a lie. But they couldn't because they, they didn't take the body. They, they didn't know where he was either. So that theory doesn't hold either. The change in the disciples after they met Jesus in the upper room and over the span of the next 40 days was absolutely amazing. Something real and transformation have had to happen there. You know That's something that transformed them from hiding cowards into courageous witnesses willing to give their lives. How do you go from, from chicken to eagle in such a short span of time? Something changed them. What happened in the upper room, the empowerment of the Spirit, also happened later to others, non-Jews included, which shows that Jesus was also alive and at work through the Spirit in their midst. You cannot fake these things. All the disciples either died or ended in jail, captivity, because of believing that Jesus rose from the dead. This means one of three possibilities is true. Is that still there? Yeah. They were willing to die for a lie, or they were totally deceived and mentally ill. All of them? But, you know, slight possibility. Or they gave their lives for a real truth, namely that Jesus rose from the dead and conquered it. Jesus and his unschooled disciples changed our world far more than any others. How is that possible? If this was all a lie. The church is still standing and making a difference. One would expect any organization built on a lie not to last. But the church keeps growing. Church keeps growing. I mean, Nowadays, we talk about vision and mission and do MBA studies or things like that. It's all about competitive advantage and make sure you have a a clear vision. Otherwise, you won't last. Sustained competitive advantage. And within five years, your competitive advantage disappears because competitors will cotton on to it and also start doing it and your organization will just drift away unless you rediscover yourself all the time. Man, Christianity has just had a competitive advantage all the way through. It's just never stopped. Jesus still changes lives today, in fact, more so than ever before. You can see the evidence is so clear. He writes to the, Hebrews, uh, the Jews in Hebrews and he says, Man, against the things that you knew, you know that Jesus is superior to all of those things. Is Jesus really greater? Yeah, man, there's no doubt. And for us today, brothers and sisters, is Jesus still greater? yes. In every way we can think of. From every angle we can argue about this. And then we go into the covenant, which we're not going to do today. So let's finish with these final words. If Jesus is really greater than all these things, in our time and in the time of the Hebrews, then we need no other and nothing else. If Jesus is really greater than all those things, then he's the answer for our broken world. He really is the answer. In the name of Jesus. Revelations 12 11. By the word of their testimony and by the, by the blood they've conquered. Blood of Jesus that flowed as a perfect shalom prize. It's perfect sacrifice and gift, all in one. If Jesus is really greater than all these things, then me and you, we are challenged to choose Jesus and start living kingdom lives in emulation of him. According to his example. I want to do something else, finish it off in a slightly different way. Can you maybe put up those words again for we exalt thee? Just want to have that on the screen. We're gonna finish with this. We don't need the musicians, I'll just we can a cappella this, I think. Let's see how it goes. I want us to sing through this three times. But before we do so, I want us to spend about 10, 15 seconds just in quiet prayer. You can close your eyes. Because I want you to make this your personal declaration. Now that you've heard all these things, you've seen all the evidence yourself again. You've already believed, but man, it should be even stronger than ever before. Let's declare this. I, myself, personally, exalt thee because Jesus, there is none greater. I believe, I am convinced, and that's why I'm giving my own life, like you did yours. I cannot do anything else. I'm challenged to live that kind of kingdom life. So just spend 10, 15 seconds, and then I'll I'll hopefully find the right note, and we can sing it together.
2: I exalt thee.
0: Lord, thank you that there is none greater. No one else. You are all sufficient, the all in one for always and forever. Shalom price The perfect sacrifice, the perfect gift, once and for all. There is no other. And there is nothing greater. Jesus is greater than anything we can think of. We thank you for this. Thank you, Lord. We are not just convinced, but we are willing to give our lives for this. And we've declared it just now. It's not just a mere cognitive c- conviction. Lord, this is a matter of our hearts. We know that we know, not just based on the arguments but from personal experience of a deep, intimate relationship with you, we know that there's none greater. Nobody can change our lives and our world like you do. Nobody can have this effect on our lives and on, on the lives of those around us that you do. And there's nobody that can do what you do, saving us, changing us, molding us, and making us like you. For this all, we thank you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.